The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So if you haven't, I do invite you to finally open your Bibles to the book of Esther. I told the guys in worship planning this past week that either Satan doesn't want me to preach on this book or God was trying to get me to change things. So since I'm here this week, uh, we're going to assume that it was the former. So ha, take that, Satan. All right. So I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Esther. We're beginning a new series today, obviously, entitled Esther or Hadassah. And here's the deal. We won't really meet Esther until next week. But when we finally do meet her, one of the first things that we are told about her is that she has two names, Esther and Hadassah. Hadassah, it's a Jewish name, and obviously she has it because this woman is Jewish. But throughout the book, throughout history, and in our own lives, she's primarily called Esther. Esther is a Persian name, and she has that because, obviously, she lives in Persia, in Susa, Citadel. She's not the only Jew living there in Persia. There's actually quite a few. There's there's a large population of Jews in Persia at this time, and they've been there for over a hundred years. Esther was born in Persia. Mordecai was born in Persia. They've been there for a long time. They had a, the people of God had originally, why are they there? Why are they in Persia? They had originally been captured, taken out of their homeland in the southern part of the kingdom of Israel, known as Judah. They've been taken away from Jerusalem and the temple, their capital city, by the Babylonian Empire. Babylonians came in, conquered, took them away, forced them to live in all different parts of the empire. That was a, it was an assimilation strategy that the Babylonians employed. You know, if we can get you away from everything you're used to, away from your homeland, away from your traditions, away from your religion, away from everything that makes you, you, we can force you into a new home with new traditions and new language and new names. We can force you to fit in and to assimilate. And here's the deal. When that first happened under the Babylonian Empire, the Jews resisted that process. We've got stories about various Jews courageously resisting assimilation into the Babylonian Empire. The person we are most familiar with is Daniel, and we know his three friends, and we know their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these these men, they stood fast against the Babylonian Empire. They refused to compromise their faith and identity as the people of God. And we've got all these stories about how God's powerfully present with them. He's saving Daniel from a lion's den. He's saving Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from a fiery furnace. But as the years wore on, time went by for the people of God, and for them, God felt less and less present and powerful. And the empires that they were controlled by felt more and more powerful. So by the time the Babylonians fell, they gave way to the Persian Empire. The Persian emperor Cyrus looks at all of the Jewish people and says, you can go home if you want to. By the time you reach that point, not all of them want to go home. I mean, some do. Some return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and the city walls. But a ton of them stayed. Why? I mean, because why should they return to a homeland most of them have never seen? My last name is Hafes. That's German. I'm not hopping a boat to Germany anytime soon was born here. Here's home. Why should they leave to go to a homeland they've never seen? Why should they go back to serve a God that their parents told them about, 
but who feels completely absent from their life and their world. I mean, sure, they probably grew up hearing stories about Moses and the Exodus because that was a situation similar to theirs, the people of God, under the rule of a foreign land, under the rule of Egypt. The parents would have told their, their kids about how God raised up Moses as a leader and he saved the people from Egypt and, and he can do that again with us. But that had to be hard to believe for them. I mean, they didn't see any powerful plagues going on. There, there, was, there was no parting of a sea for, for their salvation. They had to grow up thinking, where is the God of the Exodus now? He's nowhere to be found in Esther. I mean, we just heard all of Esther chapter 1 read aloud. Did you notice something? Yeah, God's not there. He's not mentioned in Esther chapter 1 or chapter 2 or 3 or 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, or 10. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. Neither is prayer, neither is worship, nothing having to do with God, really. And so throughout church history, Christians have looked at this book and wondered, where's God in Esther? I mean, we haven't known what to do with this thing. For the first 700 years of church history, nobody wrote a commentary on this book. I mean, like, you even fast forward to, like, the great reformers. John Calvin, who preached on almost every book of the Bible, not Esther. Great reformer Martin Luther preached on almost every book of the Bible, not Esther. And as a matter of fact, he said of Esther that he wished this book had never come to us at all. Like, even today, Esther is rarely taught. And when it is, it's usually a cleaned up, sanitized Sunday school version. Even Esther, we like to clean her up, sanitize her. Daniel is like, you know, be brave for boys, and Esther is be brave for girls. It's a little different. We like to clean it up and sanitize it so we can draw morals from it and life lessons from it. But in reality, this story is gritty and dirty. It's, It's full of political corruption, Distorted sexuality, racism, sexism, war, bloodshed, and lots of impaling. Like way more impaling than you're expecting. Nobody told you about the impaling in Sunday school. Like this is not exactly VeggieTales material. But that's what we try to do with it. Because we can't possibly see God anywhere in it. He seems absent in Esther. But Persia... Persia is present and seems oh so powerful. So, for the Jews, even if their parents had given them a Jewish name like Hadassah, why not benefit from blending in with a Persian name like Esther? Israeli biblical scholar Yoram Hazoni wrote a brilliant book on Esther. He's not a Christian, he's a Jew. But he says this, he makes this observation, Persia in Esther's time is a cosmopolitan world empire offering success and wealth to those among the Jewish exiles who will give up on the past and play by its rules. So, he says, the Jews begin to disappear into the fabric of the empire, some of them even changing their attire and their names. Why not? I mean, that's going to be what Esther has done They can't tell her apart from Persians. 
Why not benefit by blending in? Because honestly, God seems absent. Persia seems powerful. And this shades. This is why we need the book of Esther. Because we, the church, the people of God, we are a people living in exile, are we not? I mean, just read First Peter again and again. Peter calls us exiles because in actuality we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. And yet we live in lands ruled by the kingdoms of this age. Like it doesn't matter where you live on the face of this planet, it is some kind of its own Persia. We like to think that we've come a long way since Persia. We'll see this morning that we really have not. Every place is its own kind of Persia. And if we're honest, most of the time in our lives, our own Persia looks pretty powerful. And God seems absent. And just like Esther, we may have grown up on stories of God powerfully working in the lives of people like Moses, I don't know about you, but I've never seen a bush be burned and not consumed and God speak to me from it. I've never seen a sea be parted. God seems absent for exiles like Esther. And he often seems absent for exiles like us. And as a result, just like the Jews of Esther's day, we begin to disappear into the fabric of the empires of this world. We may bear the name of Christian, but that's a name we can hide from the world around us if we want and blend right in. In fact, it's often advantageous to do so. It's becoming more advantageous to do so by the day. Blend in. Don't be the nail that sticks up that gets hammered. It's often advantageous for us to blend in because Persia then will be more willing to share its wealth and its power with us. We live in a time that's not too different from Esther's. God seems absent. Persia seems powerful. This is why we need Esther. Because the primary purpose of this book is to show us the God who is present and powerful so that we might live as his people even now in exile in our own Persia. Esther shows us how God is powerfully present even when we can't see, even when it looks like he's, he's hidden. It shows us, Esther shows us how to live in this present age amidst a non-vegetailed society. It, it gives us a picture of how to live as God's people amidst the real gritty world full of political corruption, distorted sexuality, racism, sexism, war, and bloodshed. The only thing we've got less of is maybe the impaling. But I forgot about social media. Digital impaling. Esther gives us hope that God is with us and working for his glory and our good even when he seems hidden. He is present and powerful and in reality, Persia is powerless and will ultimately serve his purposes. 
Esther helps us see all of that starting in chapter 1. We're going to explore it for the rest of our time this morning, and we're going to break that down. Everything we just talked about, we're going to break it down into two pieces to explore it, okay? Piece number one. First, I want us to see why God seems absent and Persia seems powerful. We've said that's the case. Why is that the case? What makes it feel that way? So first, why why does God seem absent? Persia seems powerful. And second, let's see the truth, the reality. Let's see how Persia is powerless. And it ultimately serves the purposes of the ever-present God. How is that true? That Persia is ultimately powerless and serves God's purposes. That's, that's the plan. So let's dive right in and see first, why does God seem absent and Persia seems powerful? Esther chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Don't worry, we're only going to get about five words in. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, if you want to pronounce it in Hebrew because you're a nerd, it goes like this, Ahasuerosh. Ahasuerosh. But this king is actually better known by his Greek name, Xerxes. And so I'm not going to punish myself like I punished Brad. I'm going to call him Xerxes for the rest of the time because that's a lot easier to say. And you've probably heard of this Xerxes before. Most people know him from a famous battle called the Battle of Thermopylae. Uh, it happened when Xerxes was trying to take his Persian army and invade Greece, wanted to take over Greece, and Thermopylae is this narrow pass by the sea, and he was resisted very famously by 300 Spartans. There's actually a few more soldiers than that, but it sounds cooler when you say he was resisted by 300 Spartans, who would ultimately lose, but they resisted long enough to provide time for the rest of Greece to amass its troop troops, get organized, and ultimately defeat Xerxes. This is that Xerxes. In fact, in Esther 1, when we encounter him right here, Xerxes is throwing a feast. Why is he throwing a feast? To convince everybody in his kingdom to go to war against Greece. Yes, that war. Or that we just, between Esther 1 and Esther 2, Xerxes is going to lose that war. But he didn't know that right now. He's throwing a feast to try to convince everybody, let's do this. Why does he want to go to war against Greece? Well, Xerxes, as you can clearly pick up on in the text, does not fancy himself a mere mortal. He's not just a mere human being. No, he's different. He's set apart. He is divine-like, God-like. He is a God-man. And so no matter how much he controls, it's not enough until he controls all, because that's what a God-man's supposed to do, right? Rule over everything. I mean, look, we see just how much he controls verses 1 through 4. Look at it with me. Verse 1, now in the days of Xerxes, the Xerxes who reigned from India to Ethiopia, that's most of the known world, over 127 provinces. So that's how much he rules. In those days, when King Xerxes sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year, for all you history nerds, it's about 483 BC, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles of the governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. You see three things right here, place, people, and pomp. Place, people, and pomp. And these things are meant to make us feel the godlike status of Xerxes. Again, Yoram Hazoni says... This is a show calculated to create the impression in the eyes of his subjects that Xerxes is in control of the world. 
He wants them to see no one's power but his. He does this through place. We're told he rules over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, most of the known world. He shows his power by making sure people from all over that place are represented. So he shows his power through place, and he shows his power through people. He has summoned nobles and governors from every inch and corner of the empire because they're all at his beck and call. Everybody serves him. Showing his power off through place, through people, and through pomp. It takes this man 180 days, six months. I want to see his party planning committee. Six months. It takes most of us six months to plan a one-day wedding. Six months to adequately display his riches, his greatness, his splendor. And even that's not enough. Like if you keep reading in verses 5 through 8, it tells us how he concluded that six-month party with a week-long after party. But this one was for more people, was for all the common folk like us, like we would have gotten to go to this one. And at this one, we see it all over again, place, people, pomp. You see, place in verse 5, all of the men come to the royal gardens of the palace. That would be a, don't, don't think like garden with your fruits and vegetables. He's not showing off his tomato plants, okay? Gardens in Persia were meant to be a paradise on earth. The, the Persian word for garden is related to our word paradise, actually. It would have been a vast park filled with trees and sources of water and wild animals, beautiful, meant to feel like a paradise on earth. And the women, they were invited to a banquet held by Queen Vashti in the palace, a place no less impressive. So again, showing off his place, showing off his people. Everybody in the citadel of Susa is invited to come. Great, small, alike. Doesn't matter. Xerxes rules over all. He wants them all to see how generous of a God-man he could could be. Place, people, people and pomp. Verses 6 to 8 go into great detail about this pomp. You could see the pomp. There are white cotton curtains and violet hangings and marble pillars. You could sit on the pomp. There were couches of gold and silver people. I mean, yes, they had cushions on them, but still, couches of gold and silver. You could see the pomp. You could sit on the pomp. You could step on the pomp. Mosaic pavements, a porphyry, marble, precious stones. You could even sip the pomp. Like the royal wine is served in goblets of gold. You notice it says every goblet's unique. That's not because Xerxes has had to go around to restaurants like you and me and collect cheap plastic cups. So he's got a full set going on. These are unique because they're each handcrafted and valuable. He's passing them out like candy. Not only that, but you could like Drink whatever you wanted. Normally, at a Persian party with the king, you could only drink when the king drank. But not only that, you had to drink when the king drank. Like Even if you were filled to capacity, the guards would hold you down and pour it down your throat till you died. Not today. Verse 8 indicates that Xerxes orders this to be an open bar. Drink to your heart's delight. See the pomp, sit on the pomp, step on the pomp, sip the pomp, be surrounded by the pomp 
of Xerxes, externally, internally. Xerxes is doing everything he can to put his greatness, his splendor, his glory on display. Those are words, greatness, splendor, glory. Those are words that we are used to seeing Scripture apply to God alone. In fact, Old Testament scholar Karen Jobes, who has done some phenomenal work on the book of Esther, uh, Karen Jobes, she says this, she says, the elaborate description of the palace found in these verses is unusual for biblical narrative. Only the description of the tabernacle and the temple receives similar treatment. Like in other words, typically only God's place is talked about like this. But where's God in Esther chapter 1? Nowhere to be seen. Eclipsed his glory. Eclipsed by the glory of Xerxes. And that's on purpose. We're meant to feel as if there is only one God present Xerxes. We're being ushered into his temple, into his tabernacle, where through place, people, and pomp, we are meant to feel that he alone has all the power. That's Xerxes' aims. That's why Persia feels powerful and God feels absent. Persia's power is all you can see. It feels your vision. It feels your body quite literally. Like to convince the kingdom that he, Xerxes, has the power to conquer Greece, he puts on this display. He, he's aiming to convince them, trust me as we go to war against Greece. Trust in me. Follow me. I, I have the power to give you victory. And when I give you victory, I have the power to give you the very kind of life you are beholding. Like that's the whole point of what he's doing. Convince them to go to war. You go with me. We're victorious. I will give you the good life. I alone have the power to do this. I am your God, man. And Persia is seduced. Are we? I mean, surely not. Like as, as modern readers, as Modern readers, their chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis would talk about it, we're so much better than ancient man. Modern readers, we're not deceived by this show Xerxes is putting on. We've come so far since Persia. We don't live in a world where place and people and pomp are equated with power. Do we? Oh, shay. The ethos of Persia is still very, very present. On the micro level of our individual lives and on the macro level of, of the powers that we live under. See it present on, on, on the micro level of our individual lives. Our culture constantly tries to sell us the good life. Like if you can just keep up with the Kardashians, if you'll just buy this product, if you just get this house, if you just get into this school or get your kids in this school, or if you just marry this person or get this job or make this much money, if you can just use social media to display the place you own and the places you travel and gather as many people to follow you as possible and show off all the pomp of your life, then you will be satisfied. Like our Xerxes-esque culture 
aims to convince us that if we will trust them, follow them, they have the power to give us a life like the one we behold in their commercials. The good life. The the ethos of Persia is still very present, and we are all too easily seduced by it. It's not just present at the at the micro level, it's present at the macro level as, as well. If we just think about our own country, in our own country, politicians and political parties unabashedly employ the strategy of Xerxes. Quite literally. You ever seen a $1,000 per plate fundraiser? I've never been to one, but like I've seen one, like on TV and Exciting channels like C-SPAN. Place, people, pomp, it's, it's everywhere. You see it, you sit on it, you step on it, you sip it, it surrounds you. And even the lowly commoners like ourselves, we're, we're allowed into places of power sometimes, places like political rallies, to see all the people on our side including the celebrities who endorse our candidate, there's great pomp and fanfare. Place, people, pomp. Why? Because, like Xerxes, our political parties still aim to convince us that they have the power to conquer the opposition and give us the world, give us the country, give us the kind of life that we want if only we will trust them, follow them, sell ourselves to them as they hold up their vision of the good life and promise they have the power to give it. Shades, please, please hear me. I know everybody's like... John, that we don't like it when our pastor talks about politics. I'm sorry, the book talks about politics, so we got to talk about it. We are in a book where a political power oppresses the people of God to the point they no longer have a choice except to embrace their God-given identity. Relevant, anyone. we got to talk about it. And I promise you, I'm not partisan. I'm the least partisan person you can find. I am not, when I, and everything I'm saying right now, I am not taking aim at the right or the left. I'm taking aim at the right and the left and everything in between and all the extremes. Shades, hear me. We are living in a moment where people are placing all of their faith and their hopes in political parties and political revolutions. You can see it in how they react to who's in power. For their party to be in power ensures salvation. For their party to lose power seems like damnation. Like in our country, people are looking to politics as if it is a godlike savior. And many Christians are seduced and following suit. You can see it because they, either they live in panic. Or they live with confident bravado power, all based on who's in power. Shades, here's the reality. We, as the people of God, should always live confidently, never panicking, based on the one who's truly in power, the one and true living God. 
a distinguishing mark of Christians, a distinguishing mark of us shades of our faith in our current political climate should be that we are a people who do not panic. For our God never loses power. Oh, Shades, hear, hear this. I'm not telling you to be uninvolved politically in our country. I'm not telling you what political party to be involved with. I'm telling you that all of your involvement should be marked by the reality that you ultimately serve a different king whose kingdom is coming. And that gives you confidence no matter what paltry political parties in power. This is how people in Scripture, this is how Daniel, we talked about Daniel just a minute ago when he was first taken away by the Babylonians into exile, right? This is how Daniel lived. I mean, you cannot find somebody in Scripture more politically involved than, than Daniel. Maybe Joseph. They both held second place positions in the kingdoms that they served. Daniel was extremely politically involved, and yet the distinguishing mark of Daniel is that he never panicked. No matter who is in power. My favorite story is the story of the writing on the wall. Y'all remember this story where the hand of God appears and writes on the wall? It writes on the wall to tell the Babylonians, you're losing power, you're going down tonight, and the Persians are taking you over. Daniel comes in, reads this, tells it to the king. Quite literally in the Hebrew, the king has continence issues. He craps himself, okay? I said it, all right? Quite literally, don't blame me. The Bible says it, okay? And Daniel stands with confidence. In a situation where normally the conquering kingdom would put even someone in his position to death. But he doesn't care. He stands with confidence. How? Because in Daniel chapter 2, God had shown him a vision of all the kingdoms of the world throughout all time, including every kingdom, every nation, every government in our world today. Daniel saw them all represented by a statue, and he saw a stone that was cut out by no human hand, strike that statue, break every part of it so that the pieces became so small they were carried away by the wind, so there was no trace of any of those kingdoms left to be found, and the stone that struck the image became a mountain that filled the whole earth. Why? Because that stone represented the coming kingdom of God that will, and I quote, break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. I don't care to be counted as a citizen of a kingdom that's going to get broken. I am a citizen of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Daniel didn't panic in the face of a pagan empire because he knew who held ultimate power forever, the living God. Daniel served God's kingdom. The problem, I think, for so many believers today is that they've allowed themselves to be sucked into the world of Esther 1 where they're surrounded by the places, the people, and the pomp of this world so that it's the only power that they see. And God seems absent. They're surrounded by the 24-hour news cycle, social media outrage, late-night TV jokes. That's, 
It's the lens through which you see the world through. And God seems absent from all of it and it makes Persia seem so powerful. Do you feel that? Like I'm, this is me, open heart confession. Like shades, I got to confess to you that as of late, I have allowed myself to get sucked in by all that is happening in our world. I have found my own heart panicking. I have allowed the powers of this world to grow very big in my mind and to dominate my vision, to dominate the way that I see things. And I, in my mind, have made God very, very small. And I have been living with a much greater fear of man than with a fear of God. To the point that I... This is like open heart surgery here, Shades. I'm embarrassed to the point that I have allowed things I felt like I should say to be curbed, shaped and changed for fear of offending. I never aim to offend you. That's not my point. That's not my purpose. But my point and purpose should also never be to aim to please you, but to present you with the truth of God's word without fear and without reserve. Persia has seemed so powerful to me and God has seemed absent. No more shades. Esther 1 has been all up in my business. No more. Like, I think, I think God kept delaying this because I needed three weeks for it to mess with me. When we find ourselves, when I found myself there, what, what did I do? When we find ourselves in a place where Persia seems powerful, God seems absent, what, what do we do? I believe that the rest of Esther 1 helps us answer that question. The rest of Esther 1 shows us the second thing we need to see this morning. We've seen why it is that Persia looks powerful. It's all we can see surrounding us. It blocks out any view of God. God seems absent. We've seen why that is. It's the second thing. Let's see the truth, the reality. Let's see how it is that Persia is actually powerless. How are we going to peel back this mirage where they look powerful and see the truth? Let's see how it is that Persia is powerless and ultimately how it, how it serves the purposes of the ever-present God. Let's see how Persia is powerless and ultimately serves the purposes of the ever-present God. God. In other words, let's see a reversal. Persians look powerful. Let's see how they're powerless. God has looked absent. Let's see how he's present. The book of Esther is all about reversals. Nearly everything that we encounter in this book is going to end up getting flipped on its head, and that starts in chapter 1 and in verse 10. What's been set up for us is Xerxes' vision of himself as this all-powerful God-man but the author, whom we don't know who the author of this book is, but the author is about to play the part of Toto. He's going to pull back the curtain on this great and powerful wizard of Oz. He's going to show us the mere man is ultimately a powerless one. So let's see. Let's see how Persia's powerless. Verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, in other words, he's drunk, he commanded, not a good time to make commands, by the way, this is how Persia regularly did things. They would make laws while drunk because they believed it put them in a heightened spiritual state. 
He commanded, I'm, I'm not going to read the seven eunuchs' names. They're there. You can read them. Seven because they probably would have had to carry something Vashti would have been sitting on. So he commands these seven eunuchs to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princess her beauty. For she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come with the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. You gotta love it. Like Vashti gives him the cold shoulder, and he burns with anger. Like you can't help but laugh. You're meant to. I promise it's a lot funnier in Hebrew, okay? You're meant to laugh. This is meant to be funny. Like an all-powerful king is proved powerless by his wife. This happens every day. <laughs> every day. That's not a, ooh, that's, I'm saying my wife is more powerful than I am. The author's been setting us up for this punchline since verse 1. Like from the moment he introduced Xerxes to us, he called him by a Hebrew name. I told it to you earlier, not just for fun, but because it means something. A hashvarosh, which isn't really... It's not really a Hebrew name. It's not even really a Hebrew word. But when you speak it in Hebrew, people that speak Hebrew would get the joke all the same. In Hebrew, Ahashverosh sounds like king headache. Exactly. I told you it was funnier in Hebrew. And you know it's supposed to be funny from verse 1. King headache, who rules over everything. King headache on his throne. King headache. Blah, blah, blah. Like You see how many times it said his name? He's poking fun at him. And we can already see why the Jews would have given him this name. I mean, the guy is like full of himself, which causes headaches for everyone in the kingdom. That's going to become even more and more obvious the further we go throughout the story. But right here, we see the kind of headache he is for his wife. Can I get an amen, ladies? You see the kind of headache that he is for his wife. And Queen Vashti, she's having none of it. Like, we're not told what her motivation is right here. And I want to actually caution you. One of the primary ways the book of Esther gets interpreted is we make assumptions about the character's motivations and base our entire interpretation off of that. Here's what Esther must have been feeling. Here's what Vashti must have been feeling and thinking. We're given none of that. You can quickly distort what God wants you to receive from the scriptures by basing how you take it on what you put into it. We're not trying to do that. That's called eisegesis, ice into, reading into the text. We want to do exegesis, ex, out of, out from. We want to read out from the text. So what we're going to try to do as we go throughout. So we don't know why Vashti refuses. We made some guesses. I mean, she should just get invited to like be put on a pedestal in front of a room full of thousands of drunk men. Try and make a couple of guesses. But the main thing that happens here is she exposes this pompous emperor as powerless. Like you got to understand, this is a culture in which women were considered powerless, in which they were treated like property. Like when you read Queen Vashti, don't read into it your modern notions of queen. Like she was basically meant to be a glorified Barbie doll. Only thing we're ever told about her is how she looks. Like she's supposed to be a trophy wife. That's, that's why he sins for her. She's beautiful, lovely to look at. Bring her in here in her royal crown. The Jewish rabbis, when they read that, they wondered if Xerxes meant for her to be brought in nothing but her royal crown. 
while that may be reading into the text just a little bit, it gets the sentiment right. He just wants to exploit her as a sex object. This is one of those points when I'm like, man, I'm glad we've come so far from Persia, right? Our culture's so... Aren't you glad women aren't exploited as sex objects anymore? Sexual harassment's a thing of the past? Aren't you glad young girls aren't made to believe that their worth is bound up in being lovely to look at? I truly, we all still live in our own Persia. But see, see with me. See the irony in Esther 1. It's this powerless queen who actually exposes the powerlessness of Persia. This king who controls the world can't control his wife. And the irony, do you see the irony right there? And the ironies don't stop there. If you go through verses 13 to 22, I see at least, there's probably more, but I see at least four more ironies. I'll list them off for you. Number one, Xerxes turns a nominal issue into a national one. Like he could have shrugged this off and no one would have said anything to him. He's Xerxes, the emperor. He could have been like, this is a marriage problem. I'll deal with it later. But he makes it a matter of Persia, a matter of the state calls in seven advisors who most commentators call the seven dwarves because their names, again, in Hebrew, when read off in a list, they sound funny, just like Snow White's seven dwarves. These are a bunch of bumbling buffoons right here, and they bring about irony number two. These advisors, they're worried. They're worried that word's going to get out. Vashi refused her husband, and there's going to be a new wave of feminism it's going to spread all throughout Persia. And everybody's going to be, all the wives are going to rise up. So, irony number two. What do they do to keep the word from spreading? They spread the word. Like Persia had a kind of like Pony Express system. It was actually incredibly efficient for the size of their kingdom. And so they use it. They use it to send out an edict. And this edict contains two more ironies. Okay, irony number three, Vashti refused to come into the king's presence. So, what does this powerful king do? He refuses to let her come into his presence. Ha! You see this here? This is like when Talitha, my five-year-old, she asks one of her older siblings to play with her, and they say no, and she's like, I didn't want you to play anyway, so I still get my own way. Ha! Like, that's what's going on. Like, Xerxes, he listens to his advisors, banishes Vashti. He's essentially giving her kind of what she wanted. Maybe she's thankful for this? I don't know. We don't ever hear about her again. We'll never know. But the greatest irony, irony number four, comes in verse 22. Look at it. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, to every people in its own language, that every man... Be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Irony number four. All husbands are ordered to do what the king could not. It's like he wants to ensure that his powerlessness is understood and felt in every home. The author wants us to see it and feel it. Through the use of satire, he's poking fun at the Persians all throughout this chapter. 
like a Saturday Night Live sketch in Esther 1. All of Esther, really. And he does that with a very serious matter. I mean, before this book's over, we're going to be dealing with genocide. This is often what we have to do when we're on the underside of power. Do something to help us laugh at the powers that be and their ridiculousness. The, the author wants us to see and to feel through satire and irony. He wants us to see the reality that for all of its pomp, Persia is actually powerless. And he wants us to see that there is someone who actually is powerfully present in Esther chapter 1. God is here. God is present. God is powerful. By the time we get to the end of this book, this book was not originally divided into chapters. It's meant to be read as a whole. As a matter of fact, at the Jewish Feast of Purim every single year, they read the book as a whole. I considered doing that. It takes us 30 minutes out loud. But I figured y'all weren't up for that just yet. So, chapter 1. But by the time we get to the end of the book and we look back on chapter 1, we will clearly see that God is present and working for His power, for His glory, and for the good of His people. We have a name for that. We call it providence. Providence. It's a big, huge theme all throughout the book of Esther. It's God working His power through seemingly normal circumstances, normal actions, normal choices. There's nothing crazy happening like plagues or the parting of the sea or burning bushes that aren't consumed. But just as powerfully, God is governing everything for His glory and the good of His people. We know something that sounds like that, that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. That's what He's doing, and we're going to see it by the end of Esther. We're going to see, by the end of Esther, we're going to see that if Xerxes does not get drunk, then he doesn't call for Vashti. And if he doesn't call for Vashti, Vashti doesn't refuse, which means she doesn't get banished. And if she doesn't get banished, there's no place for Esther to become queen. And if there's no place for Esther to become queen and be raised up into a position of power, then she cannot speak on behalf of the Jewish people. And mass genocide will take place, eliminating the Jewish people, not just in Susa, but all throughout the Persian Empire. And if that happens, that means that 500 years later, a certain Jewish man by the name of Jesus Jesus called the Christ cannot be born as God incarnate. Live and die for your salvation and mine. You've got to see that God is powerfully working his providence right here. Like you've either got to believe that or you got to believe that the entire plan of God's redemptions of God's redemption hinges on Xerxes having one too many to drink. I don't know. It's toss up. Like, no, God is powerfully present, present to, to providentially govern all things for His glory and the good of His people. God is present in chapter 1 and being shown to us as the one in power, even if it looks like He is hidden. The book of Esther, it's His story. This is God's story. He's the main character. That's why Esther, Mordecai, they don't show up till chapter 2. Haman doesn't show up till chapter 3. The people we normally think about as the main characters, they're not even on the scene. But God is. He's the main character. And God is on the shades. God is on the scene now present now in your life as you live as an exile amidst your own Persia that may seem so powerful. God is present now, providentially working now. The Persia that surrounds you is powerless, and it will ultimately serve His purposes. 
How, how are you going to see that? How are you going to believe that? How are you going to live your life in line with that? We've got to do what the author of Esther is asking us to do. See the world through the lens of this word. It's what he's asking the exiles to do. People still living in exile. See the world through the lens of this book of Esther. Not through the lens of the 24-hour news cycle or social media outrage or late-night TV jokes. No, we need to see the world through the lens of this word because it helps us see the irony that this world believes itself to be in power when it's powerless. It helps us see that by setting the Persians of this world next to the power of God. And all of a sudden, we see how puny Persia really is. It's like, it's like when my, my younger brother, when he was two years old, uh, he refused to put on his shoes one day when we were supposed to go somewhere. And my father, who's six foot five, giant of a man, he was always in my Sunday school class, he was the reference for, for Goliath. Still a giant of a man to be. My father tried to be patient with my brother, telling him to put on his shoes, until... A brother told him no and spit in his face. I know. At that moment, I thought to myself, well, having a little brother was fun. That was cool while it lasted. And we all laugh at that image because we see the irony of my brother's resistance. We see his powerlessness set next to my father. And this word sets Persia next to our father. This is what the author of Esther is doing. And this is what we must do to see the truth that Persia is powerless and will ultimately serve the purposes of God, we've got to see this world through the lens of this word. Shades, when, when the Xerxes of this world try to convince you that they're powerful by showing you all of their pomp or tweeting it, hey oh, see them through the lens of Matthew 16, 26. What will it profit a man if he has white cotton curtains or marble pillars or sits on gold couches or walks on precious stones, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? That's what Xerxes did. Scholar Karen Jobes is helpful here again. She reminds us the great splendor of Xerxes' empire now lies in ruins beneath centuries of dust. Scripture reminds us that that is true for every man-made empire ever. It ever was or ever will be. When the Persia around you looks powerful, remind yourself of Xerxes' kingdom beneath the dirt and God enthroned over all. When, when the Persia around you looks powerful, see it through the lens of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 that says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain as if they're in power and God is not? We're told in verse 4, God who sits in the heavens laughs. Laughs at the fact that they think they're in power. When political parties around you look like they rule the day, see them through the lens of Proverbs 21 in verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he will. 
They may think that they rule the day. They may think God is in control. And Shades, that is good news because he's the only one who can save. No matter what any political party promises, they cannot save. No Xerxes and no Persian kingdom can save. Christ alone and Christ's kingdom can save. For Christ alone is everything that Xerxes wishes he could be. Christ alone is the God-man. Christ alone is the ruler over all places. Christ alone is the ruler over all peoples. And there is no need for him to display his pomp because his bride, his church, does that for him. Because when Christ calls his bride into his presence, it's not like Xerxes beckoning Vashti that he might pridefully exploit her. No, to call us into his presence, Christ humbled himself, sacrificed himself, allowed himself to be exploited on the cross in our place so that we might be saved. So when he calls, we don't refuse, we run. We run, we run to him, and in doing so, we display his glory. We display his worth to the world. We, we become like his pony express, sent to the corners of the earth to announce his empire of love and redemption and salvation. Jesus Christ is the one and only Savior, and he rules over every Persia ever. See that shape. See it through the lens of this word. Every time we come together, we aim to see this truth again. In fact, the book of Esther, it's going to end that way. It's going to end with the institution of a feast called Purim. We'll talk more about it when we get there, but it's a feast designed for the people of God to gather consistently and remember who rules the world. What we do here on Sunday morning is meant to be that gathering around this word to see our world through it, to remind us who rules the world, who is the king and whose kingdom is coming. We've gathered here this morning to see that. Do you see it shades through the lens of the word? Do you see that Persia is not powerful and God is not absent? He is ever present, powerfully working his providence for his glory and our good. He is not absent. He's ever present. Amen. Amen.